Brother Caleb Adams, Pastor Caleb Adams, is doing a great work in the city of Memphis. He is a pastor as well as other things as well. He has pursued his education. He is currently pursuing that. I have personally been where he is and have seen the work he's doing. He is also building a new structure. He is uh, uh, doing some wonderful things in the kingdom of God. He obtained his master's degree in Christian ministry from Hope University, International University. And uh, he serves on a number of advisory boards and local churches. He is involved in global missions. He speaks at many events, national, international conferences. And uh, he is from North Little Rock, Arkansas. Please do not hold that against him today. He will outlive that dubious beginning. Brother Caleb, welcome. How about giving him a good hand today, would you? Thank you. It is an honor to be here today and to participate in the Symposium on the Apostles' Doctrine. And what a beautiful setting to showcase such a beautiful doctrine. My subject today is the sufficiency of the Apostles' Doctrine. The Apostles' Doctrine encompasses the beliefs and practices of the founding apostles of the Christian Church. These apostles were hand-selected by the Lord and given unique authority to author the tenets of the Christian faith. At the end of the first century, the writings of the apostles and other individuals inspired by the Holy Spirit to write New Testament scripture were complete. The doctrine of the apostles, as outlined in the New Testament, is a fully developed theology that needs no ancillary or subsequent development. Unfortunately, many Christian sects use the works of early church fathers, early American evangelicalism, and reader response hermeneutics to shape modern theology into something far removed from that of the original apostles. In particular, Christology and soteriology have experienced significant evolution from their original forms. The church should reject ancillary development of the apostles' doctrine. Instead, it should focus on better understanding and articulating the fully developed doctrine that has been given us. The apostles' doctrine. The apostles preached and taught what they received from their one-on-one -on -one time with Jesus and from direct revelation. These teachings were codified into doctrine and subsequently taught to the churches by others as a governing body of beliefs. The apostles considered adherence to their doctrine to be of salvific importance. Although many of the New Testament epistles were situational, the other apostles esteemed these epistles as inspired scripture applicable to all the churches. Even the most cursory read through the New Testament will reveal that the apostles did not consider their doctrine to be diachronic. Instead, their resounding consensus was that they preached a static doctrine that was inspired by God and capable of leading individuals to salvation and governing the orthopraxy of the church. Numerous statements by the apostles reveal intense opposition to any alteration of the words 
they wrote or the gospel they preached. And I'm going to give you several of the quotes. And when we read them, I think it's important for us to try to feel the passion and the heartbeat uh, that was in the writers when they penned the following words. Paul admonished, stand fast, hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. He further stated that disobedience to his words were grounds for excommunication. If any man obeyed not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him. Peter warned against reassigning meaning to Paul's writings in his epistle. Paul talks about these same things in all his letters, but part of what he says is hard to understand. Some ignorant and unsteady people even destroy themselves by twisting what he said. Paul even stated that God would use his gospel as the criteria for judging men's souls. Clearly, the apostles viewed their doctrine as synchronic and not to be subjected to any alteration by its recipients. Immediately after the birth of the church at Pentecost, Luke noted that the disciples continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Subsequent passages indicate a premium was placed on continuance in the apostles' doctrine. Paul complimented Corinth for their continuance. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. Peter echoed Paul's words in his second epistle, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Be mindful of the words of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Jude further admonished his readers to earnestly contend for the faith and to remember the words spoken by the apostles. The Apostle John closed his apocalypse with a stern warning. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. The themes of continuance, preservation, and defense of their doctrine in its original form are a consistent refrain throughout the apostolic writings. The apostles understood that insidious attempts by men of ulterior motives would be made to corrupt the pure teachings they were putting into the church. Therefore, they insisted that the church adhere to the doctrines that they taught. Christology. Christology is the study of the life and nature of Jesus Christ. Without question, Christ was a central theme of the apostolic preaching and writing. The apostles understood Jesus Christ to be fully God and fully human, the expression of the invisible God. No apostle espoused the Trinitarian view of the Godhead, not one of them. Paul stated his belief in one God, Romans 8, 
Romans chapter 3 and verse 30, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6, Ephesians 4 and verse 6, and in 1 Timothy. Paul also stated that God is one. Pauline Christology affirmed that Jesus Christ was the visible human form of God and that the fullness of the Godhead indwelt the body of Christ. Haight observed that most Christology is lumped into two categories, a high Christology, which emphasizes Christ's divinity, and a low Christology, which highlights his humanity. The apostles affirmed both Christ's humanity and his divinity. Christ was presented as a human made of a woman, and Christ's divinity was described with terms such as great God and the chief shepherd. The apostles understood Christ to be the Savior and that his spirit was the same spirit that indwelt believers. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ comprised the core of the gospel and was the foundation of the soteriological teachings of the apostles. The apostles handed us a fully developed doctrine of salvation. It was the Lord himself who conferred soteriological weight to the words of the apostles when he prayed, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Furthermore, Peter was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, careful attention should be given to the soteriological statements of the apostles. Apostolic teaching emphasized that salvation is predicated on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But just as importantly, they articulated the response required to receive salvation. The appropriate response to the gospel is repentance, baptism, and spirit infilling. Throughout Acts and the epistles, the act of repentance is directly connected to one's conversion, as is water baptism by immersion in the name of Jesus Christ. The apostles also emphasize the infilling of the Holy Spirit as an essential part of conversion. The apostles were certain of the efficacy of Christ's atonement and his ability to provide salvation. They were also certain of the obedient response required of those who would put their faith in Christ for salvation. In no case did they hint that the response of repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, and receiving the Spirit were optional addendums to one's conversion. In the next section, I'm going to spend some time on doctrinal drift, the problem of doctrinal drift, because this very much speaks to where we are today, the church world at large. A glance across the spectrum of modern denominations will reveal that a significant portion of Christendom has drifted far from the beliefs and practices of the original apostles. Trinitarian Christology and the current practical soteriology promoted by many church leaders today is much different 
than that of Peter and Paul. Modern theology is becoming increasingly detached from its apostolic moors. This doctrinal drift is a result of a confluence of acceptance of early church fathers as the authoritative interpreters of Scripture, the influence of early American evangelicalism, and reader response criticism. Each of these factors have subtly usurped the role of the original apostles' doctrine in shaping the theological framework of the church. Let me speak to you for just a moment regarding the early church fathers. And one of the challenges in preparing this presentation is the study of early church fathers and the writings is such a vast, vast study. Uh, there was no way to do it justice in the brief amount of space and time that we had to deal with here. So I just scratched at the surface and hit a couple of highlights that could be expounded on for many hours should someone take the time to delve into it. The development of Trinitarian dogma over the first four centuries of church history profoundly changed the Christology that was handed to us by the apostles. With the emergence of Trinitarianism, Jesus no longer embodied the fullness of the Godhead. Instead, he became part of the Godhead. The Trinitarian view of Christ did not originate with the apostles. Rather, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, it developed over several centuries and through many controversies. According to the New Catholic Encyclopedia, it was only at the end of the fourth century that what might be called a definitive trinity dogma, one God in three persons, became thoroughly assimilated into Christian life and thought. Tertullian, who lived, uh, uh, was born in 160, the common era, died in 220, is credited with inventing the word trinity. It would have been in its Latin form, trinitas. Tertullian's Christology suggested that Christ was subordinate or second to the Father. Tertullian's treatise against Praxius presented Christ as a distinct person from the Father and was a major influence on the Christology of his era. Ironically, Tertullian himself admitted that his Trinitarian view of God was contrary to the majority consensus of his day. In Against Praxius, he stated, the simple, indeed, I will not call them unwise and unlearned, who always constitute the majority of believers, are startled at the dispensation of the three-in-one. The role of Tertullian in embedding the Trinitarian view of Christ into early Christian theology cannot be overstated. His writings provided a tremendous impetus to the shift away from oneness Christology of the apostles to the Trinitarian Christology currently embraced by much of Christendom. Another pioneer of Christ Trinitarian Christology was Origen. He was born in 184 and died in 
2.54. Like Tertullian, Origen approached Christology from a distinctly Trinitarian perspective. And Origen's primary contribution to Christology consisted of the idea that the Son of God pre-existed the Incarnation. And if I may deviate from the notes for just a moment, I want to point out that if Tertullian and Origen were to stand in front of modern Orthodox Trinitarians, their Trinitarianism would be soundly rejected because they did not believe that the Son was co-equal to the Father, but rather they subordinated the Son to the Father. So the Trinitarians who developed their erroneous idea of the Godhead, largely from the writings of these men, don't even fully believe what these men wrote who handed them their theology. Following Origen, the Cappadocian bishops, Basil the Great, Gregory of Nyssa, and Gregory of Nazanzus, further developed the idea of one God in three distinct, and they added, co-equal persons. By the end of the fourth century, Trinitarian Christology had been codified into church dogma and continued through the Reformation until our present day. The early church fathers who placed Jesus into a triune Godhead were far removed from the original teachings of Paul who put the fullness of the Godhead in Jesus. When modern theologians overstep the clear oneness view of Christ in the New Testament text to embrace a Trinitarian dogma of early church fathers, they implicitly suggest that the church fathers from the second century and later knew the identity of Christ better than the apostles who lived and interacted with him in the days of his flesh. And in my opinion, that is an exercise in extreme arrogance to believe such a thing. Early American evangelicalism. If the early church fathers began doctrinal drift by severing the Christological ties to the original apostles' doctrine, early American evangelicals capsized the theological boat concerning soteriology. If one were to ask the majority of evangelicals the same question that was posed to Peter on the day of Pentecost, what must we do? The quick reply would be that we must accept Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Then we would be led in a sinner's prayer. Mainstream denominationalism widely accepts conversion by accepting the Lord as the appropriate response to the gospel. However, accepting Jesus as personal Savior is nowhere to be found in the original teachings of the apostles on soteriology. The apostles were adamant that the correct response to the gospel of grace involved repentance, water baptism by immersion in Jesus' name, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. 
The apostolic pattern regarding baptism was to baptize the new convert immediately upon believing on the Lord. In modern times, it is common for significant time to elapse between one's initial belief on the Lord and their baptism. Viola points out that in the first century, this lapse between belief and baptism was unheard of. Today, accepting the Lord has replaced the function of baptism as the primary confession of faith. Furthermore, it is common for Protestants to proclaim that one is filled with the Spirit through faith at the point of conversion, whereas Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox assert that the Spirit comes at water baptism. These common beliefs concerning the point in which a person is filled with the Spirit are radically removed from the apostolic pattern which demonstrates spirit infilling as a separate and distinct experience from both believing and baptism. Some Pentecostals have correctly identified spirit baptism as a distinct experience, but have denied the soteriological significance of the same. However, the apostles believed that spirit infilling was essential to salvation and was the means by which one was joined to the body of Christ. When one considers that the doctrines of soteriology have eternal implications to the state of one's soul, the current dichotomy between the New Testament plan of salvation with that of modern evangelicals is quite astonishing. This begs the question, how did we drift so far. Who instigated this? When did it begin? Who is to blame? The separation of baptism from initial belief began in the second century when certain influential Christians taught that baptism must be preceded by a period of instruction, prayer, and fasting. Once baptism was no longer associated with initial belief, the way was cleared for early American evangelicals to substitute the sinner's prayer for water baptism as the primary confession of faith. Early American revivalist D.L. Moody is credited as the very first to introduce the sinner's prayer as the way to salvation. Moody's sinner's prayer was brought to popular and mainstream usage by Billy Graham in the 1950s with his Peace with God tract. It is noteworthy that the sinner's prayer has undergone a significant softening in more modern times. Chitwood made the following observation. Where sinners were once exhorted to pray to God for Christ's sake, to soften your hard hearts, to change your corrupt natures, and bow your stubborn wills and to mold and form you into his own blessed image, they are now encouraged to invite Jesus into their heart and life. The language has obviously softened. 
and the Calvinistic theology has been modified, one could argue that an entire shift of focus has taken place. The sinner was once instructed to phrase the question, will you accept me? The sinner is now instructed to make the statement that I will accept thee. This shift is representative of the changing face of theology in the Protestant world. Salvation by repeating a prayer is nowhere to be found in the teachings or record of the apostles. Faith towards God, repentance, water baptism, and the unfilling of the Spirit were all distinct acts associated with each conversion in Scripture. These biblical soteriological beliefs and practices must be the gold standard by which the soteriology of each generation is evaluated. If soteriological beliefs and practices are divorced from the apostolic example in the New Testament, they are sure to become adapted to the carnal whims of an increasingly humanistic society. When early American revivalists began substituting the sinner's prayer and accepting Jesus as personal savior in their desperate attempts to make Christianity appealing to the masses, they lifted anchor from New Testament doctrine and set the church adrift into the tides of humanism. By promoting an easy believism plan of salvation not found in scripture, early American revivalists made way for an even more radical departure from the original doctrine of the apostles via the modern reader response hermeneutic. And let me just preface this next section regarding reader response criticism. In my opinion, this will become one of the greatest challenges that we will face as a church body in the defense of the doctrine moving forward. Um, many people are not familiar with this, and I will just briefly open the door to it in this section, but it would do us all well to familiarize ourselves with this. Reader response criticism emerged as a popular biblical hermeneutic in the 1970s and 80s. Katrina Kochi defines reader response criticism as a purely synchronic approach looking at the final form of the text and does not take into account either the development of the text or its history. Reader response advocate David Klein's further asserts, whatever a text may mean in one context, it is almost bound to mean something different in a different context. When theology is formulated, using the reader response hermeneutic, the message of scripture becomes more about what the reader interprets it to mean in light of his or her given context than about authorial intent. When authorial intent and the historical context of the New Testament is no longer a primary factor in shaping the meaning of a text, the resulting theology derived from said text becomes somewhat fluid. When a text is stripped 
of its inherent meaning, the reader must impose his or her personal and cultural biases on Scripture and risk drawing conclusions regarding the text that are radically different than those intended by the divine author. Some of the advocates of reader response have sought to mitigate the highly subjective outcomes of allowing individual readers to assign meaning to a text by insisting that the text be defined by an interpretive community. In either case, the meaning of the text is somewhat authored, altered from that of its original author. When evaluating the validity of reader response criticism as a hermeneutic, we must pose the question, was the Apostles' Doctrine, as presented in the New Testament, dynamic or static? The idea that doctrine is dynamic and its meaning defined by the context of the readers raises all sorts of conundrums. First, who and what constitutes the church? If the New Testament model no longer defines the initiation into and the beliefs and practices of a given church body, then who does? If a church body or ecclesiastical polity has the moral authority to develop theology into something different from what is presented by the apostles, then which church body has this authority? Or do they all? From whom do they derive their authority? And how do we explain the hundreds of varying church groups who reach radically different conclusions regarding the meaning of Scripture? Do all have the moral authority to patent their own version of truth, even when said truths are contradictory to each other? When the door is open to manipulate the apostles' doctrine to mean something different from what it did in its literal historical context, absolute truth is lost and mass confusion reigns. In such a world, the original beliefs and practices of the apostles lose all relevance and ability to shape today's church. When we consider that the Bible deals with matters of ultimacy, the implications of assigning new meaning to Scripture apart from the original intent of the authors is quite frightening indeed. Understanding and an articulation. Timothy was admonished to give attendance to, meditate on, and take heed to the doctrine of the apostles. In so doing, he would procure salvation for himself, as well as those to whom he ministered. He was also advised of the importance of studying the word and of preaching doctrine. The advice given to Timothy holds true for us today. The doctrine of the apostles offers a fully developed Christology and soteriology, but ministers must apply themselves to understanding the doctrine and develop the skills to articulate it to others. The scriptures cannot be fully understood through a purely rational academic approach apart from the aid of the Holy Spirit. It takes the Holy Ghost to get it, to see it, and to understand it. 
It is only through the enablement of the Spirit that one can fully grasp the full weight and meaning of the Scripture. Therefore, much emphasis should be placed on Spirit infilling as exemplified at Pentecost as a prerequisite to biblical interpretation. Once the doctrine of the apostles is grasped via Spirit-given revelation, their message must be communicated to others. The minister of the gospel must also rely on the enablement of the Spirit to empower the simple apostolic gospel message instead of resorting to hubristic attempts to make their message more palatable to modern minds. The power and demonstration of the Spirit was a hallmark of the ministry of the apostles throughout the New Testament. If ministers depend on the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to both understand and communicate the gospel, they will experience the same dynamic results the apostles encountered in the book of Acts. And in conclusion, the original apostles gave the church a fully developed Christology, which emphasized the mighty God in Christ, and a complete soteriology emphasizing repentance, water baptism in Jesus' name, and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. The original Christology of the apostles was altered by the Trinitarian inventions of Tertullian, Origen, and other church fathers. Early American evangelicals further corrupted the plan of salvation established by the apostles in the book of Acts record by replacing it with the sinner's prayer. Reader response criticism has disconnected the writings of the apostles from their authorial intent, leaving them to be reshaped by each faith community. All of this together has produced a modern church landscape that is incongruous with that of the original New Testament model. The great need of the present day is a return to the original beliefs and practices of the apostles as shown in the New Testament. The New Testament model is the ultimate standard by which both orthodoxy and orthopraxy should be gauged. If ministers lean on the empowerment of the Spirit to understand and articulate the original doctrine of the apostles without any additional embellishment, they will find their doctrine entirely sufficient to guide today's church in steady growth and revival. Thank you. We're going to enter our question and answer session. And just to inform you before our next session, we will reserve five to ten minutes before our session with Dr. Wilson to give you a momentary break uh, to just stretch and uh, allow your blood to flow a little bit. So if you're watching the clock, we will probably uh, reserve that amount of time for that. So. Reminder, keep your questions concise, on point, hopefully written down so that we can redeem the time. Very interesting subject, very relevant subject today. So uh, we're going to open this up for questions uh, this morning. I have, uh, let me 
get the one in the back first, and we're connected back there with some of our audio listeners, and let's give them an opportunity first. Brother Mayo. Brother Adams, that was nothing short of excellent. Um, going back to page number six with the um, description of doctrinal drift and early church fathers, I must confess I am fascinated and I have been for many years about this uh, period of time. Could you articulate a little bit more perhaps about what brought about the gap from the apostles themselves to the early church fathers. I know that you mentioned here the Christological implications um, and was just wanting to hear a little bit more from that if you could add something. Thank you. Well, the Trinitarian view uh, actually began in ancient Babylon and many false religions had a trinity of gods. And early on, the first uh, traces of Trinitarianism uh, predated uh, Tertullian. It was Justin Martyr who started suggesting uh, some very uh, primitive Trinitarian concepts. And his attempt was to uh, bridge the gap between Christians and pagans. And so he brought an idea of a three-god trinity into the realm of Christianity. And Tertullian, a few years later, grabbed that from Justin Martyr and greatly uh, enhanced that. Then when we trace, uh, trace it down through uh, church history, Constantine, leading up to the Council of Nicaea, also did that. But Constantine's motives uh, for advancing the Trinity dogma were, were political. Uh, Rome, uh, the Empire of Rome was tottering at that particular time, and in order to consolidate the powers of Rome, uh, Constantine chose to do, through, do so through uh, the Catholic Church, and uh, really the Catholic Church became uh, what it is today under the leadership of Constantine. It was started in a primitive form sometime before him, but he's the one that really put it on the map. And uh, once again, Constantine understood that in order to bring pagans into the fold, they had to appeal to pagan concepts of many gods, polytheism, so they substituted a trinity. The pagans were uh, very much into the fertility uh, cults, uh, Diana of Ephesus and Aphrodite, and so Mary worship. Uh, became a substitute for the fertility goddesses, and then praying to saints, substitute praying to the many pagan gods. And so uh, pagans bought into it lock, stock, and barrel, and over the first four or five centuries, many Christians also began to do that. And I might add that the compromise of the church was brought about by much duress. Uh, many times it was convert to a Catholicism or die. And under that kind of pressure, um, the Trinitarian dogma became established. On page 7, and follow up to that on the first paragraph, having to do with these issues of Tertullian, toward the bottom of that paragraph, you state his, 
writings provided a tremendous impetus to the shift away from the oneness Christology of the apostles to the Trinitarian Christology currently embraced by much of Christendom. We know that much of that was brought about by the concept of apostolic succession that these men received and their words were as powerful as those of the original apostles. Can you make a comment as to why apostolic succession is a fallacious concept? Yes. Uh, the further away from the apostles, the apostolic succession uh, is predicated on the premise that the generation that followed the apostles knew doctrine equally as well, and in many cases, many obviously assume they knew it better than that of the original apostles. Uh, I personally believe that the founding apostles of the church were given unique authority to author scripture. And if their authority, if the authority to author scripture was not limited to the founding apostles, then how far does it extend? If it extended to the generation that succeeded them, why not extend it to another generation or extend it all the way up to us and we could all write our own epistles. And so I, I feel like it's very much a fallacious argument. Thank you. I saw several hands simultaneously in the back, the young man with the red shirt. If it's not an inconvenience, would you mind standing so people can see who is asking the question? Don't want to inconvenience you, but it's hard to see our questioners. Excellent dissertation, Brother Adams. My question comes on, with the advent of the internet and the access of information, reader response criticism has become one way in which peer-reviewed writings have strengthened our need for sound teaching, such as this venue. To what degree should the apostolic church engage in the debate, and how has this age changed our position on method of delivery, i.e., how do we exemplify the simplicity and sufficiency of the apostolic doctrine in light of this challenge, that people are getting their doctrine in the quote-unquote safety of their own homes. How do we get the message to them before the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy it, especially considering that their and our access to information, especially when we emphasize one must experience Pentecost to understand it? That's a very good question, and I think the answer to that is uh, multifaceted. First of all, those who teach the doctrine need to have their own experience. They need to be Holy Ghost filled, and they need to have spirit given revelation of that. And when the doctrine is presented with anointing, power, and demonstration, that gives truth a certain ring to it. Those who are sincerely seeking for truth can recognize the feel, the solid, substantial feel of truth, as opposed to the syrupy uh, feel of error. Uh, but that being said, I feel like there is a very great need for apostolic Pentecostal people to give themselves to studying and writing and communicating our doctrine on an academic level. Gone are the days 
when a backwoods country bumpkin that can't even pronounce many of the words in the Bible and could not define theological terms, he's not going to be able to influence a large sector of our society. And it becomes us to follow in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul in learning ourselves. And many people are quick to bring up the scripture that the uh, disciples were unlearned and ignorant men. Well, the Bible doesn't say they were unlearned and ignorant. It says they were accused of that by their enemies. I would not want my enemy's description of me to become what people believe to be the fact. Uh, so that scripture is, doesn't really hold weight when we uh, uh, refute academic development. But I will point out that Peter, who was accused of being unlearned and ignorant, wrote two books of the Bible and Paul wrote 14. So that's the difference between higher education and those who do not have higher education. Very good. Education without Holy Ghost, you just become a smart devil. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> right here in the front. Thank you. Um, I would like to refer you to page, um, not to page 11, and I'll read the uh, sentence. This is this reader response, and then I would like to connect it to the uh, other page, number five, on Christology. And I'm asking the question from the standpoint of a pastor of more than 30 years. It says, the idea that doctrine is dynamic and its meaning defined by the context of the readers uh, raises all sorts of conundrums. And I like to add to that conundrum for the pastor. In other words, you know, just as you stated, um, the messenger delivering the doctrine is presented with solid anointing and power. And then I'd like to connect that with page number five when we talk about the Christology. Page number five at the top says, the apostles affirm both Christ's humanity and his divinity. So the conundrum of the pastor is to deal with both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus in dealing with the reader's response. So this is the predicate to the question. Being fully human and tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin, and being our human example, and I'm glad that my, my wife stepped out because she would kick me on this particular question. We're going to tell your I'm wife. I'm dealing with the full humanity. Did Jesus have a libido? And could Jesus procreate? And give us scriptural instances where you think this might be inferred. Again, like I said, the challenge of the conundrum of the, of the practitioner is dealing with Jesus as our perfect example to individuals in our congregation who has to interpret the response to Jesus to the issues they face with respect to that area of their life, their libido? That's a very good question. Um, 
did Jesus have libido and could he procreate? My opinion on that is yes, because he was fully man. But when the Bible says that he was tempted in all points, such as we are, and yet without sin, that does not mean that Jesus was tempted to do everything that every person is tempted to do. It's said on all points. And temptation, all temptation can be lumped into one of three categories, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And in his wilderness temptation, he was tempted with the lust of the flesh, command the stones to be made bread, the lust of the eyes, all the kingdoms of the world, will I give it to you? And the pride of life, which is the temptation to perform, he encountered when the devil said, cast yourself down just to prove you are who you say you are. But I do not know of any passage that refers to uh, Jesus's procreative uh, temptations or whatever. So, In this uh, section over here in the back, Nathaniel Urshan, please. Would you stand and tell everybody who you are? No, I'm teasing. <laughs> I'm Nathaniel Urshan. Thank you, Brother Adams, for a, a wonderful perspective on this um, sufficiency of apostles' doctrine. One of the problems that people have is wrestling with bias. They're raised with a Trinitarian orthodoxy. One of the things that has been a problem in the past is that in attempting to articulate their position, they'll refer back to men like Tertullian and say, well, because that's the context, that's obviously what the early church taught. And they will try to reform what the apostles actually said and did, looking at it through the lens of Tertullian's words and men like that. That's a de facto way of elevating their writing to almost scripture. Um, what do you think needs to happen in the discourse moving forward? How can we help people to overcome that bias? Uh, one of the problems is if we take every word Paul says, we take every word Peter says, and rightly so, it is scripture. That same rule is not applied to Tertullian. Tertullian believed that women were inherently evil. He called them the gateway of the devil. He said that original, the original curse lived on through them, uh, and so his enemies accused him of being misogynistic, uh, and many other things, crazy stuff. So they'll pick and choose what they believe there. And there's kind of an intellectual dishonesty there. The sincere seeker of truth should be able to see past that. Moving forward, how would you recommend dialoguing and entering into discourse with somebody who's influenced by his writings and the subsequent teachings that come from that and redirecting them back to a purely scriptural perspective? That's a very great question, very relevant. Uh, I think you have to establish early on in the dialogue with uh, people who tend to do that, what constitutes scripture and what is the ultimate authority. And it goes back to uh, the rhetorical questions that was in one of the sections of my paper that uh, if the authority to author scripture is not limited to the apostles, if it can be opened up to be defined but other people, where does that stop? 
why do we stop at Tertullian, Origen, uh, Constantine, Council of Nicaea? Why don't we extend it all the way up to us today? And then that opens up the whole issue when we get conflicting views of theology, who's right and who's wrong. And ultimately, we have to refer it back to the Bible. So my particular approach in dealing with people is to use a sola scriptura approach. And for those who aren't content to do that, uh, I personally haven't had good luck uh, changing their viewpoint. Thank you. May we uh, pause a moment and ask, are there any questions from our listening audience on Holy Ghost Radio? We certainly want to include them in this question session. This question comes from a listener in Arkansas who says, why is Paul, who converted after, was converted after the ascension of Jesus, an absolute authority on apostolic doctrine teaching and teachings concerning church government and practical Christian guidelines, yet Christian scholars who came after him, i.e. Tertullian, are not? One of the... Uh prerequisites to be an apostle, as stated in Acts chapter 1, is they had to have seen the Lord. And the apostle Paul mentioned that he himself had seen the Lord as one born out of due season. Now, whether that was referring to his uh, heavenly experience alluded to in 1 Corinthians or, or 2 Corinthians, rather, or rather he had seen Christ pre-conversion, we do not know. Uh, but I do feel like that placed Paul into a unique category. And then another strong uh, consideration to accept uh, Paul's writings as authoritative scripture is that Peter, who we know had the keys to the kingdom, referred to Paul's letters as scripture. And it was in the passage where he said, that people twist his words as they do the other scriptures. So I think both from internal uh, evidence as well as the test of time, uh, the Apostle Paul's writings are definitely deserving to be in the canon. Well said. <clears throat> I think also we must acknowledge the fact that even though Paul received a direct revelation, he was more than willing to submit himself to the Council of Jerusalem. And had Tertullian done that, we might have a different story and history, yes. Can we get a question from the far section over here on my right? Does anyone in that section have a question? Well done, Brother Caleb's. Uh, for the sake of those that may be listening, uh, could the development of the Trinity be considered the further expression of God to mankind as a mystery not fully given to the apostles, just as the church was not give, seen by Israel? No. Question from over here. Brother Holmes, you had a question? Brother Adams, I have a question with respect, again, to reader response criticism in uh, relation to Pentecostal hermeneutics. On page 11, you write, when theology is formulated using the reader response hermeneutic, 
The message of the scripture becomes more about what the reader interprets it to mean in the light of his or her given context than about authorial intent. And in the next section on page 12, under understanding and articulation, you state, the scriptures cannot be fully understood through a purely rational academic approach apart from the aid of the Holy Spirit. It is only through the enablement of the Spirit that one can fully grasp the full weight and meaning of the scripture. Critics of a Pentecostal hermeneutic would look at that and they would say that in that understanding, Pentecostals are guilty of essentially a reader response approach to scripture in its subjectivity. What is your response to that criticism? Well, my response would be, and it's a very valid question, and, and I will give credit to those that would raise that question. There are times when Pentecostals are very much guilty of doing exactly that. Trust me, many occasions when that has happened. But true Bible study and revelation involves learning what the authorial intent was. And part of that is not only connecting with the facts of Scripture, but it's also connecting with the ethos of Scripture or the heartbeat of God that was there. And I believe that the Holy Ghost uh, very much is, is needed to fully grasp authorial intent. From the center section, gentleman right here, gray suit, blue shirt. Thanks, Brad Adams, for your presentation. Um, the unfortunate thing here is that we cannot stop uh, people who teach erroneous uh, doctrines. Uh, we can't stop them until they also receive revelation. And I do realize that people would always validate whatever they believe by putting it in writing and publishing it. So. Um, we have tons of messages, Bible study materials, sermons, um, but I, my question is, are there any materials published by yourself or anybody in a group of ministries dedicated to addressing the apostles' doctrine? Are there materials that you can recommend for us to keeping our libraries and read? I recommend Dr. Wilson's book on the Pentecostal theology. And, and there are lots of other uh, books uh, available. And you, um, David Bernard is one premier apostolic theologian that has uh, written quite a few good works as well. And there are countless others. I just can't recall them at this moment. Pastor Adams, I'd like to submit a moderator's question. Uh, in view of the historical significance of the events that you recorded here concerning Tertullian, Origen, and other, quote, post-apostolic fathers, am I correct that the modalistic monarchian movement, as we would define it in these centuries, up until the year 1000, were indeed in the majority, and that this group was in the minority but their volume of writing is greater than the volume of writing by the modalistic camp. Is that a correct assessment? Um, 
I don't know at what time period they stopped becoming a majority, but I do know from everything that I've been able to read that through the fourth century and possibly until the year 1000, they were a majority. Tertullian himself said that the great majority of believers who were simple souls uh, were of the other persuasion. And uh, as was mentioned in one of the sessions yesterday, one of the reasons that we don't have uh, a lot of oneness writing is because the Catholic Church aggressively confiscated, burned those writings and uh, killed the people who owned them. And so, uh, and a lot of what we know of the monarchians and the Montanists were uh, from what we read about their detractors who were opposing their works and we were able to exert quotes from their writings that way. Back to the center section. Someone have us, I saw the hand uh, toward the back in the back far corner. I have a question, first of all, years ago, this was something that was dealt with when I was in at the Angelicum in Rome, and the uh, whole idea of the Trinity, uh, when you say on page seven that Tertullian is credited with the inventing of the word Trinity, I don't mean to dispute you, but Theophilus of Antioch, at the end of the second century, was actually the first person recorded to use the word. And my question deals with the fact that he refers to um, the Genesis account when he uses God, Logos, and the breath, Sophia, as his basis for the division of the Godhead and also in context with the three men appearing to Abraham. How do you uh, respond to that? Well, you can't separate a man from his breath. And, and I'm aware that Theophilus did do that. I, I was not aware that he had used the word Trinity from Trinity extensive, um, extensive works that I've uh, researched um, every author that I've researched has ascribed Trinitas as an invention of uh, Tertullian. Mm -hmm. However, the concept of Trinity uh, did, it, it was found in Theophilus' works as well as Justin Martyrs who predated Tertullian. Uh, as far as the three men who uh, appeared to Abraham as evidence to the Trinity, I don't see any scriptural indication that that was the case. Okay. I've, I've not heard that one yet used to substantiate it, but that'd be interesting. It was one of the early ones that was used along with the beginning of the Please no follow-up uh, without story. recognition. Ask your question and allow him to respond. No interaction, please. Are you finished with this? Okay, thank you. From the far section over there, Reverend Hedden.
I, I just felt, um, and pardon me for kind of breaking decorum on this, but to respond to the last question of Theophilus, when, when Theophilus used the word trinity, it was never used within the benchmark of a threefold Godhead. It used to represent the word, wisdom, but it was never used in the concept that later merged and became the trinity as Tertullian would describe it. So yes, he used the word trinity, but it was never used in the context of what was later prescribed by Tertullian. So sorry for breaking decorum here, but I just felt to clarify. I have a question on this side from Pastor Tom Dehod, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Thank you, Brother Adams, on a phenomenal paper that was presented. My question, in regard to Brother Mayo's question about the effect of the beliefs of church fathers on the development of Christological understanding, you brought in the belief of pre-existing mythological pagan trinities. In my studies, I have found that the integration of the Greeks into the early church community brought about a deep discussion of the degree of Jesus' divinity and humanity from the Platonic Logos concepts, which overtook the monotheistic views of the apostles. Could you comment on the influence of the Greek Logos influence? Yes, as you mentioned, uh, Plato was the link between the Babylonian concept of Trinity to that of the Christian world. I do know there was a very strong link there, and Plato was one of the ones that laid the philosophical framework to separate the logos of God from the person of God, which eventually became, uh, as a second person, son of God. Our side, yes, sir, close to the wall. Uh, a few moments ago, you mentioned books and literature. Um, do you know of a periodical or a writing or a, a paper, a book that out that shows the maybe an outline or a timeline of the the apostolic doctrine that the original church to today? Um, I, my fear is and concern is, is that, that a lot of it was done in secrecy due to the, the, the atmosphere that the Catholic Church brought on. I know from reading uh, Sir Isaac Newton's writings that his, his own true feelings on, and beliefs on Christianity he kept in secret up until his deathbed. But do you know, uh, my, so my question is, do you know of uh, something that shows a timeline? Yeah, one excellent work that I would recommend is called After the Way Called Heresy by uh, Wiseman. I believe Wiseman is W-E-I-S-M-A-N. And, and it has a timeline, as you described. Let me take the gentleman right here on the front, please. And may I request, in, in deference to decorum, once you ask your question, surrender the mic back to the cadet so that there's no interactive conversation. Once you ask your question and surrender the microphone. Thank you. Uh, Darren Price uh, from Wisconsin. Uh, could you clarify, um, 
in my notes a, a statement that you made about the individual who is uh, teaching or preaching the apostolic doctrine not being articulate enough to do so um, because it, it begs the question, Peter, uh, who was a fisherman, but after he'd received the gift of the Holy Ghost, preached the first apostolic message on the day of Pentecost. So I just want to make sure that I get that right. Um, your comment about um, country bumpkin or something like that. I just want to make sure I had it right in my, my notes. Could you clarify, please? Yes. First of all, Peter was accused of being ignorant and unlearned. I don't believe that is entirely the case because we know he did write two books of the Bible. And when you read his communication as outlined in the book of Acts, he was obviously able to express himself uh, well. And his writing was, was done well in both the epistles of First and Second Peter. So to allege that he would be illiterate or inarticulate I don't think would be fair. Um, I grew up in the country, a mountainous region of the United States where people indeed were ignorant and unlearned. And some of the crazy theology that was concocted back in the mountains would just astound all of us here today. And so I feel that every preacher must do as the Apostle Paul say and give attendance to reading, exhortation, and doctrine. And he also said to study to show yourself approved to God. So there is a certain degree of divine approval that only comes through study. And if a minister is not willing to apply himself to that kind of study, I think he should go be a plumber. On this... <clears throat> On this subject of education and PhD, I'm reminded of the two men who were discussing their journey of academia, sharing war stories, and another gentleman was sitting there just listening, and they turned to him and said, and you, sir, do you have a PhD? He said, I am a PhD. They both looked at him and said, excuse me? He said, I am a PhD. I passed high school with difficulty. So we understand the need for it. And may I remind you that God himself did not have a Ph.D. for the following reasons. He only had one major publication. Number two, it wasn't published in a refereed journal. Number three, there are those that doubt whether he wrote the book himself. Number four, he created the world, but his critics say, but what has he done since? Number five, the scientific community can't replicate his results. Number seven, he rarely came to class and usually tells his students, just read the book. <laughs> Number eight, his office hours are sometimes held on a mountaintop. Number nine, he doesn't present at conferences and number 10, he spent too much time teaching and not enough doing research. So would you stand with me on that note? And let's uh, give Dr. Adams here a good round of applause. <laughs>